0: Welcome to Episode 10 of The Funding Coach. My name is Don Gooding, and I'm the founder of Four Colors of Money for Entrepreneurs, a blog, podcast, training videos, and other resources, all designed to help you figure out what's the right mix of bootstrapping, grants, loans, and equity, and especially figure out what you should be doing now to get the right color of money for you. Here on The Funding Coach, I help real businesses with real funding problems so that you can figure out how to start and grow your business. In this episode, I'm following on to the interview that I had with Margot Walsh of Mainworks. As you may recall, if you heard that interview, Mainworks is a company that helps both people coming out of opioid addiction programs, as well as coming out of prison, helping them to find good jobs in uh, industrial construction, as well as landscaping. There are two things that I want to follow up with. First of all, I want to build on this phrase that Margot said in passing. I really had no business opening a business to begin with. And I want to extend that to the notion of how many entrepreneurs feel some version of something called imposter syndrome. And then I want to dive deep into the world of interconnecting impact investors on the one hand and B corporations on the other hand, which then relates to a really broad issue of how do you as an entrepreneur think about both making money as well as changing the world, something that's near and dear to a lot of entrepreneurs' hearts. But first, Margot had said, I had no business starting this business. And that reminded me of something I've heard discussed in other contexts called the imposter syndrome, Of course, I looked that up in Wikipedia to get my facts straight, and it turned out in the late 70s, a pair of psychologists came up with this diagnosis because they observed some women, especially in corporations, felt like their accomplishments, which were considerable, were coming from a place where they didn't feel qualified to be doing what they were doing. And so they had this overwhelming fear that they were going to be exposed as frauds. Now, I don't want to get into the deep psychological, but simply extend that as a metaphor, if you will, to the feeling that a lot of entrepreneurs experience, which is to say that they've started a business that they really didn't know a lot about at the beginning, and along the way they are achieving some success – but they feel like they are an imposter. They feel like they're a fraud. And so they denigrate what they've been able to accomplish and they feel at the same time a great anxiety that this success is not going to be sustained because they are kind of a fraud. So I just want to say if you feel this... You are not alone in this kind of feeling. I'm going to draw a direct analogy to my own experience starting an acapella CD catalog in 1992. So I was a technology venture capitalist. I had plenty of accomplishments there. But in the world of a cappella CDs, I mean, I didn't know anything about the music business when I started. I didn't know anything about retail when I started. Nothing in my background would say that I was going to be successful in doing this. And yet I did it anyways because I was passionate and I wanted to change the world. I wanted more people to hear this wonderful music or music that I considered to be wonderful. And so... There were definitely times when I thought of how much I'd achieved and I thought, boy, you know, I just didn't know anything about this business when I got started. And for sure, I ran into some problems because I didn't have that background. And yet I persisted. So this is actually a pretty normal, common experience. It's certainly not everybody's experience when they are starting a new company, However, there are plenty of people who start when they're young, or they do this jump into a new business, as I did, and they are starting from a very fresh perspective on that industry. So there are challenges to be sure, because you don't have that industry context, you don't know all the mistakes other people have made. But on the other hand... You do have this fresh perspective and you don't know what you don't know. So you try to do things that other people think are, quote unquote, impossible. And sometimes that leads to innovations that other people who do have all of that experience would never even think of trying to do because they think that's impossible. In fact, when I was young, I did a lot of musical theater, loved musicals. And one of my favorite shows growing up was the musical Cinderella. And there's a song in Cinderella that ought to be, you know, the theme song for some of the entrepreneurs out there, Impossible. That The refrain of that song is, impossible, things are happening every day. And that's an attitude I've actually been able to bring forward in my entrepreneurial career and working with entrepreneurs. And in order to have that attitude, you actually have to have a certain degree of naivete. So I would just say that if you're feeling like, you know, you had no business starting your business, A, you're not alone, and B, you can leverage that to actually come up with new ways of doing things that will be good for the world and make that big difference that you are trying to make in the world. And now I'd like to dive into this very important but complex issue of how do you balance, first of all, making money, both as a company and for investors, and then also trying to have an impact on the world, both as a company, as well as investors who are trying to do good things with their money. First of all, as a high-level executive summary, there's been continual progress in both domains of how do I make money both as a company and as an investor, and then separately, how do I increase my impact on the world both as a company and as a philanthropist giving to nonprofits or NGOs, non governmental organizations. But what's relatively new over the last 10 or 20 years is trying to put those two together in a systematic way. There's a great deal of progress, but compared to doing those things separately, those domains uh, aren't coming together in as mature a way as either philanthropy on the one hand or investing on the other hand. So that's the high-level summary. Of course, corporations, entrepreneurs, have for many, many years thought of themselves as making money as well as trying to do good for the world. What's perhaps not as well known is that people with money have tried to do both at the same time as well. In the very early days before World War II, It was wealthy individuals who were considered both venture capitalists and what we would call today angel investors. It was only after World War II that institutions were formed to become professional venture capitalists. And the term angels actually didn't start in high-tech companies, rather it comes from people who were supporting the arts, specifically on Broadway and in films, because those new plays, those new films required early funding, and they had a high failure rate, and so the people who contributed, invested, if you will, in new shows or new films were called angels. Over the last few decades, the angel investment community has become more organized through angel investment groups, and they've started to resemble venture capital in terms of their financial aspirations as well as their financial sophistication. And yet the world of angel investors includes lots of people who are not organized in groups. And because this is money of individuals, they can do with it whatever they'd like. These same individuals are sometimes philanthropic with their money. So I describe angel investors as having, if you will, two sides of their brain, the angel side that is trying to do good for the world and the investor side of their brain, which is trying to make money. And depending on the individual and the particular opportunity in front of them, they may be acting or thinking more like an angel or more like an investor. The angel side of their brain, if you will, can do anything from thinking about supporting the local economy, supporting a specific entrepreneur because of a relationship with that entrepreneur, or they may be trying to make the world a better case. So, in my personal example, I invested in a company called Ocean Renewable Power Company back when the oil crisis was very much in the headlines. And while I thought that I could make money on ORPC with their title Energy Generation Innovation, I also thought that if they succeeded, it would make the world a better place. As a whole, though, angel investor groups have shifted the mentality, at least to the thinking within the context of that group, much more to the investor side of the brain. And so the process of trying to find investors who are thinking more like an angel, which might be what Margot Walsh needs to do with Mainworks, well, that's not nearly as systematized today as angel investment groups are. But it's important to point out that angel investment groups in the long-term scheme of things are relatively new, just a couple decades old. So there's some hope in the future. There may become some more systematic approaches for accredited investors to do impact investing, but that doesn't exist today. There's another form of financing that is extremely selective, but is trying to change the world in a way that some people think is going to be for the better, and that is using tax credits to fund specific projects. You may be familiar with the fact that a great deal of solar energy investment is funded in large part because there are these tax credits that are available to the purchasers of uh, solar systems. What you may not be aware of is that some of these tax credits, particularly for large industrial alternative energy projects, are actually tradable so that a company that is doing a project and generates a specific tax credit, that tax credit can actually be sold to somebody else who can take advantage of that which then ends up helping to fund the project. So this notion of using tax credits to fund investments, in part at least, has been around for a while. It's highly selective. It turns out in my subsequent conversations with Margot Walsh of Mainworks that there are A particular kind of tax credit available to companies that hire people who are making a transition out of prisons. And so she's been trying to take advantage of those. And it may be that those tax credits can be a component of her future financing of growth because some people will be able to take advantage of those while others wouldn't be necessarily interested in those tax credits. This is one illustration of something that happens, especially to later stage companies, is that they try to do larger projects that actually require a bunch of different funding sources all coming together to make a complete package. It's a world that I don't know a huge amount about from my own personal experience, But I have heard and observed a bunch of fundings, especially on the debt side of things, where you have senior lenders and junior lenders, so people who have different levels of comfort with different levels of risk, all coming together to fund a particular project. And there are other projects where you have to have a mix of debt and equity to make something happen. And then there are these other projects where there are things like new market tax credits, as well as debt, as well as equity, all coming together in a very complicated way to make a big funding project work. This episode of The Funding Coach is brought to you by Branding Compass. Now, you probably know that building a brand is important, but you don't have tens of thousands of dollars to pay a branding company. And that's why the interactive online tool Branding Compass was created for companies like you. It's like working for an award-winning branding firm, but for a fraction of the price – Branding Compass walks you through the questions a branding firm would typically ask. And if you need some help on some of those questions, Branding Compass includes a course to help you build a stronger brand. The system provides automated expert advice so you get really useful output from the process. Recommendations for a color palette, typefaces, and imagery as well as a unique value proposition and even an ideal customer profile. And that's just for the basic version of Branding Compass. If you need more help, you can get it. I was a beta customer for Branding Compass, and I found it extremely helpful even back at the beta stage. You can see my customer testimonial at brandingcompass.com. And while you're there, sign up for the branding compass and use the coupon code the Funding Coach, all one word, all lowercase, to save $10 on the right licensing option for you. Another huge part of this issue of trying to balance making money versus doing good for the world is the role of institutional investors. If you're not familiar with that term, that includes a bunch of organizations that have huge pools of money that they need to invest. Those include pension funds of corporations, as well as organizations such as labor unions, university endowments, insurance companies, as well as funds for individuals. And If you think about the history of these kind of institutional investors and how they've thought about either making money or doing good for the world, they started paying attention to this issue when corporations who were, if you will, doing bad things for the world – were agitating the constituencies of these institutional investors to the point where they said, okay, we're not going to invest in companies that are doing bad things. If you go back and look at the battle to end apartheid in South Africa, that's one of the first milestones. But since then, people have been agitating to stop investments in companies that sell tobacco products more recently, oil and gas companies, companies involved in creating global warming. And it's evolved now to the point where there is a term ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance. And companies are now being rated on their ESG. In other words, are they doing evil, or are they at least not doing evil to the world? And certain institutional investors, because of the demands of their constituents, the people who are ultimately funding them, are now saying, hey, we're going to take this into account when we're trying to think about who we should invest in. I've had a sideline role in all of this. I, in fact, just yesterday, got a little bit of money back from an investment I made a very long time ago in a company that was rating companies on this ESG before ESG was even uh, a fully developed phrase. This is part of the challenge of being early in a marketplace. But nowadays, uh, it is something that is on the radar of institutional investors. At the same time that institutional investors are trying to figure out how not to do evil in the world, there's a growing awareness that, in fact, their investments can be used to help organizations that will create positive change. Of course, philanthropy has long been a topic for those with money, but what's relatively new is the notion of impact investing. That is, investing either equity or debt in companies that themselves are going to be making the changes that perhaps more traditionally a nonprofit or NGO might be thought to be creating. And this is exactly the kind of thing that MainWorks is trying to do. They're trying to use a for-profit vehicle to create positive social change. The term impact investing is relatively new. At a conference in 2007 organized by the Rockefeller Foundation, they actually came up with this term to describe the notion of trying to put money into a for-profit company and getting some financial return as well as some social benefit. Now, the question is, How much return is appropriate? And in a recent survey by one of the large organizations that is monitoring and advocating for impact investing, the expectation of returns is pretty wide across the board. The terms that they use are a return of capital, which is to say if they put in a million dollars, they want to get a million dollars back. At the high end, they expect risk-adjusted market returns, and I'll explain what that means, and then somewhere in the middle, below market returns. So at a high level, they want to at least get their money back and at the high end, get the same kind of returns that a company with similar kinds of risks would be able to provide them without simultaneously providing the social benefit. So what does it mean to have a risk-adjusted market return? Well, there's been a lot of study of investment risk over the years, and it's measurable more in large corporations than in small corporations. But if you think of it in terms of the venture capital world, Uh, there is an expectation that some large percentage of those companies will completely go bust, return zero on the investment. And you need to have a high return from a very few companies. And overall, the portfolio should be beating the market rate, which is generally considered to be The Standard & Poor's 500, which over a very long period of time is about 7% return a year. And so the overall goal is to get maybe a portfolio that's earning 15% per year across both the big successes as well as the failures. So let me boil all of that language down to what it might mean for Margot as she's trying to talk to investors. If she talks to an impact investor who says, I'm trying to achieve risk adjusted market returns, they're basically saying, I want companies that can, as a portfolio, give me the same kind of financial returns as investing in a portfolio of a venture capital fund, which is pretty crazy for me as an outsider to think that that would be an expectation, and yet there it is. Even crazier, in my opinion, is that institutional investors that are trying to do impact investing in developing countries have a higher perception of what the overall risk is and therefore a higher perception of what the market return ought to be on a risk adjusted basis. So they are looking for extremely high financial returns as well as high social impact. Now, I can't change the way things go, but for you as an entrepreneur with a company that is trying to have a positive impact in the world, I think what you need to do up front is when you're talking to potential impact investors get a clear understanding from them of what their expectations of return are to see whether or not you're going to be a good fit for their portfolio so i want to bring this conversation over now to b corporations and something that i've been learning about in terms of the influence of C-corporations, as opposed to B-corporations, on behavior of companies in the U.S. capitalist system. So it turns out that Delaware, little state of Delaware, is the place that most large corporations have incorporated, and corporate law is dominated by state law, and over time, the courts in Delaware, through many, many court cases, have built up a whole bunch of precedents. The most relevant for this discussion has to do with this trade-off between giving returns to shareholders versus anything else, because it turns out that in this large body of lawsuits and legal decisions in the Delaware corporate courts— that this notion that shareholder returns are the most important thing has come to dominate a lot of legal cases. You can still try to do things that are simultaneously good for the world and making shareholders money at some point in the future, but you have to make a very explicit connection between the social change that you're trying to make and making money for shareholders. And that's one of the reasons why people came up with this notion of a B corporation or a benefit corporation, because it bakes into the company charter a support for doing social good. According to Wikipedia, as of now, there are 35 states plus the District of Columbia that enable benefit corporations or B corporations, so it's now possible for entrepreneurs to make the choice up front to say, I'm going to, yes, get return for shareholders, but find a balance between that and trying to do some kind of good for the world. The very first state to enable B corporations was the state of Maryland back in 2010, so this is all very new. To summarize, then, if you are an entrepreneur who very explicitly wants to find a different kind of balance between doing good for the world and making money both for the corporation as well as potential shareholders, on the one hand, you do have a bunch of options that are emerging, but on the other hand, because they are relatively new the kind of investors who will be comfortable using them in this new field are going to be those who are comfortable taking a few more risks than typical. So on the angel side of the world, even though over the long term, angels have tried individually to find balance between social and return on investment, today – Most angel investment groups lean towards the return on investment side. So it's hard to find angel groups that are explicitly and systematically thinking about social impact. The world of tax funded social innovations has been around for a while, but it's pretty focused on just a few areas in the area of institutional investors. That world has started to emerge over the last decade, but I think it's fair to say that a lot more has to develop over the subsequent decades before the majority of institutional investors are going to feel really comfortable plunging into impact investing in a big way. On the side of corporate law, the world of B corporations has emerged even less than the last decade. So it takes a while for all of those things to settle out, for the legal community to get really comfortable, but there are options out there for you. And then on the financing side, I've done some blog posts recently on innovations in the world of revenue sharing, which seem to be particularly appropriate for young companies that have a fair amount of risk, but uh, potentially can deliver venture capital style returns without the risk and without the necessity of having an exit in order to achieve those returns. So it's very exciting times, but also scary. What else is new, right? This is life of being an entrepreneur. So don't get discouraged impossible things keep happening every day. So it'll be possible just a little bit harder and take a little bit longer to find your balance between making money for yourself and for your investors and making that change in the world that is a big part of your vision. Impossible! Things are happening every day. And that'll wrap up this episode of The Funding Coach. Please make sure you head on over to fourcolorsofmoney.com, where I've included some links and resources related to today's shows. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about this big issue of trying to balance your impact on the world with making money. And also, please head on over to iTunes if you haven't done it already and leave us a rating and a review. We want the whole world to know that it is useful for entrepreneurs to hear real funding challenges and share them with each other. So please let the world know over at iTunes. I really appreciate all of your feedback and you listening. And I look forward very much to chatting with you again soon here on The Funding Coach.